Hello and welcome to Simcast, the higher education simulation podcast. My name's Tony Jeremy. I'm the academic lead for simulation-based education at UEA Norwich. Hello everyone, my name's Lawrence Hill and I am the chair of the simulation group in the School of Health Sciences at UEA Norwich. So Lawrence, what are we going to be talking about in today's episode? Well, today in this episode, we're going to be talking about, uh, we're going to be looking at simulation as a side hustle finding time to do simulation as a busy academic or clinician. If you enjoyed the episode, please give us a like. Equally so, if you didn't like the episode, give us a dislike, but let us know in the comments why, because we're always keen to improve. To keep up to date with all things Sim, hit the subscribe button and don't forget to check that notification bell. And Simcast is now available on all popular streaming platforms. So just search for Simcast. Nice. Lovely. Um, so yeah, so let's face facts. Simulation is resource intensive, isn't it? Very resource intensive. Yeah, and really time intensive, whether that's planning it, writing it, facilitating it. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of effort and can quite often feel like it's being kind of squeezed in amongst everything else. Yeah. But on the flip side, we hear time and time again, just how much our learners love simulation. They all, you know, particularly with healthcare, they're hands-on practical learners. Mm -hmm. And what better way to learn than through something like clinical skills or simulation? Yeah, there is too much simulation in this module, said, said no, no student ever. ever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, it's it, I mean, it's, it's kind of credit to simulation's power as a pedagogical tool. Um, and the feedback we often get is, oh, we need more sim. Um, but actually there are reasons why that can be quite difficult, yep. um, which we'll talk about in this episode. But... Uh, there's also that that with every kind of increase in sort of simulation, it becomes less and less of a side hustle and more and more of a, actually, God, this is just what we do. Yeah, so we've got a group of learners who love using simulation as a way to learn. We've got a group of academics who are being pushed from pillar to post and they are often spinning multiple plates. Yeah. So there's obviously a clash between the two. So I guess the episode today is about exploring that, the, yeah. the real world messiness and the struggle that we often have as educators. Yeah, but we talking could, of which, talking of which, t tell me a bit about what you do in addition to your simulation, to, to doing simulation. Okay. What do you do? What's in your portfolio as a busy higher education academic in operating department practice? So, yeah, so I am a, uh, I'm an associate professor in operating department practice. So that's my bread and butter course mm -hmm. that I deliver. Uh, we have a three-year BSc program and I basically deliver half of the modules on it. So I've got okay. two modules which I deliver in year one and one module that I deliver in year three, which are year-long modules. Right. So my learners go into practice um, at certain points. So I get a little bit of, uh, you know, trough time where mm -hmm. I can invest into things like simulation. But a lot of the time I'm doing a lot of teaching as well. Mm -hmm. As an academic, I'm also doing all of the assessment side of things. Uh, I'm an external examiner for another university. Uh, there are all sorts of different things that are, are competing with my try time to do a simulation. As the simulation lead for the school, I have half of my time allocation for simulation, but mm -hmm. I'm the only person in the school that yep. has any time allocated officially towards simulation. And we're talking about a school which has got thousands of learners. Yes. We're talking about, the, I think, one of the biggest, if not the biggest school in at the University of East Anglia, several thousand yeah, like five, two, three yeah, thousand learners, something you added, like that. Total. Added all of them up over the, the different three-year programs that we do. Yeah, we've got a lot of people uh, who are coming through the, the school, uh, and obviously, simulation is one component of that. Mm -hmm. But pretty much all of our programs do some aspect of simulation mm. in one form or another. Sure. 
So it's, it's a similar kind of picture for me in a way. I don't have any time allocated for, for simulation activity really other than teaching time, which, you know, is you know, a nominal amount of time um, in my working week. Yeah. Um, I'm the course director for the paramedic degree program. Uh, I work four days a week for the University of East Anglia and a day a week for the College of Paramedics as their associate head of education. Just started, very excited by that. Congratulations. Um, thank you very much. Yeah, yeah. I'm really excited about that. But, um, but for, so four days a week, I'm a lecturer, I'm an associate professor in paramedic science, and I'm a course director, and that takes up a chunk of time. I don't organise a modular at the moment, but I'm kind of, I have a professional lead role in that yeah. I line manage essentially a reasonably large team of 10, 11 um, staff members who yeah. are responsible for delivering, for delivering um, a degree programme. And in addition, in, and in addition to that, I also am organising some post-registration, new post-registration modules. Um, and then, of course, we, we all have, uh, you know, commitments to do with marking and yeah, moderation. And, and uh, personal advisors. So advising. we all have a load of students who we are the their kind of go-to academic for uh, advisees. And yeah. that, I'm, I'm sure, happens across uh, different and just, universities. And just a huge amount of, like, I... Always think of it, you know, a, lot, a huge amount of ad admin, but Meetings I think a lot of the time, email is something is like leadership described as uh, as disguised as admin. Like yeah. I feel like a lot of the time our, our roles include, you know, giving examples and, you know, finding solutions and that kind of stuff. So amongst all of that kind of... We've got a jam simulation in somehow. We, we, and it's really important because we know how, how important it is from, from a learner perspective, but also in terms of developing those competencies, crucially for delivering learning outcomes, mm. simulation is absolutely core to healthcare education. So another quick follow-up question, and mm. I think it would be really useful to maybe ask our viewers yeah. also. But when you do simulation, typically... How long is that going to take out of your working day? If you do it like a simulation event or uh, there's a, a, a topic in your module or program which is, is sim-based. Yeah, I, it's, it's, it's almost without fail more than a whole normal working day. Yeah. Because more often than not, we're going to want to arrive plenty of time before the students do to have a briefing and to discuss mm. what's going to happen over the course of that day. Yeah, you're always there early, aren't you? Always. On a sim day. So, you know, I, it's a day where I'll have to arrange childcare because uh, I know that I'll be leaving the house before I can drop the kids at school. Um, and then it's a whole day of, of, of teaching normally. And then normally during lunch, you're talking about how the, <laughs> how the morning went how the morning's and, and gone and whether you need afternoon. to make any tweaks. And then generally afterwards, there's we're really lucky here at UEA in that we've got a fantastic team of simulation technicians who do a huge amount of the, the logistical, the clear up and the tear down kind of work. Yeah. But there's always things to discuss at the end. Yeah. Um, and have you at the end of a sim day gone to look at your emails and just thought, Oh, I'm exhausted. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Really Forget about have... simulation as a side hustle. It's like email as a side hustle. What, I, what it is, isn't it? Yeah, on huh? a sim day, everything else kind of has to sit on the back burner. Yeah. So we have got this real challenge of of juggling the two. And yeah. of course, we're talking about education. It's no different in clinical practice, is it? Because if, if, if anything, it's probably worse because mm. the clinical need and requirement mm. can't take second place to yeah. something like simulation. Uh, I know colleagues who uh, try and run a simulation centre in a busy teaching hospital there's maybe one or two of them for the whole hospital mm. and they're often often in that position just because they're enthusiastic about simulation and again yeah. not recognizing the time that's that's needed for yeah them. so so actually if you do have a time allocation for your simulation activity whether you are a clinician or higher education or further education educator we'd love to know about that we'd love to know how much time you get and then probably actually how much time you spend planning and delivering writing sim mm. 
So because simulation is resource intensive, I think it's safe to say you've got to be pretty organized for it to go well, yeah. or at least according to plan in the busy reality of mm -hmm. the worlds that we work in. Yeah. So what can you do to be organized? Well, I mean, we've talked, haven't we, on the on the podcast before and on our Sim Instructor course about planning simulation. Mm -hmm. So I think having a structure around uh, having a, a, a structured way of approaching planning simulation will help, but it doesn't change the fact that there is a lot of planning to do. So organizing it around, you know, like a system like Site, where you think about, um, you know, the surroundings, the information, the team and the equipment that you need, that's probably one step. But trying to stay ahead in your calendar, like you say, when you have those mm. troughs, and that probably doesn't ever apply to our our fellows in in, in no. clinical practice. It's never a trough. It's winter pressures, you know, January through December, isn't it? But um, trying to trying to get ahead in some way, I think. Okay, so we'll look at them a bit later in terms of like a strategy for survival. Mm. But something worth thinking about: definitely being organised, just because the nature of simulation very resource intensive in terms of, like you say, the surroundings, the uh, the planning that needs to go behind it. The, the people that are involved and, and obviously the equipment provision that you need as well. But I think a, a major part of this is about communicating the importance and the value of mm. simulation. And I think that's one way that we might be able to try and carve ourselves the time in order to do it. And so I question, in healthcare, mm. healthcare education, I think most people have heard of simulation. Yep, I reckon that's a fair assumption. Do you think everyone understands what simulation is? <laughs> Definitely, there is some variation yeah, in okay. understanding about okay. what it is. We were we were talking, weren't we, on the way back from the um, HPSN, the CAE conference, um, just Last before year, Christmas. Yeah. And we were talking about the terminology that we use in simulation. I think mm. even at that level, there is quite a wide variation in and, and that, that's, what people mean by simulation. And that's simulation educationalists yes, themselves, exactly. isn't it? Let alone other people. Yeah. So I think it's not surprising that there is some variation in terms of that. And, and so that makes communicating the value of simulation mm. that bit more difficult. Um, because I think actually this this issue of not understanding or not seeing a value in simulation occurs at different tiers. Yeah. I think it occurs at a kind of course tutor or educator tier. I think it occurs at a kind of um, sort of senior leadership tier mm -hmm. within within um, healthcare education organisations. I think it occurs at an institutional level. And I also would suggest that it occurs at a regulatory level as well. Mm. So if we look at those levels, mm. so at a course level, so you might have a module organiser responsible for a module. They want to put their own kind of slant on things and, and, and make it their own. If they don't see the value in simulation, it might mean that that whole module doesn't get simulation in it. Yeah. Or if they have a conception of simulation, which is that it's basically just doing some skills and then that's that, mm. then that for me is, is part of the, uh, part of the, the sort of the, the big picture of what simulation and skills practice-based learning looks like but people might have different conceptions of what that is and the skills uh, that are required in order to facilitate learning through simulation effectively. Um, so it definitely occurs at that level. People who are saying they're doing simulation when actually they're probably doing some skills um, or are doing kind of role play type exercises and calling it simulation, which might be a bit more complex, but they're not using a kind of formal kind of briefing yeah. and debriefing yeah. model. 
Yeah, and we've we've come across this before, haven't we? We've spoken to colleagues who said they don't really understand sim, and actually, when you unpack some of what they're doing, you're like, that's pretty much simulation. Yeah. You're just repackaging. You're calling it something different. Yeah. You might be like a problem based learning or something yeah. like that, but actually, the you're blurring the lines between what you think you're doing and, and actually what simulation is. Yeah. What about at a senior management level then? Well, I mean, like, I think the first thing to say is that clearly School of Health Sciences at UEA can see the value in simulation. Yeah, of course. And there's been, you know, there's been great investment from from both from the... Um, the government, essentially, to, to help build this centre and a recognition that simulation is important. But I think the fact that you are the only person within the school with a dedicated time allocation is yeah. is kind of, you know, that, that that's kind of emblematic, really, I think of, I mean, clearly it's for a leadership function uh, and people might argue that simulation kind of falls into teaching, which it probably does. Yeah, I think it comes down to money as well, doesn't it? Yeah. Budget, budget and finances, because, you know, in a, in an ideal situation, we would have someone non-academic who is a manager of the the, the simulation centre. I think that would be important. Mm. But then finding the finances for that to happen, you know, having a post-release for that when we need more nursing lecturers, when we yeah. need more technical staff, when we need X, Y, and Z mm. is challenging. And again, it often, you know, the manager is getting pressures from the person above them and then the person above, above them as well. And and wanting to see tangible results. And sometimes mm, yeah. that doesn't always happen, does yeah. it, with simulation? No, that's right. So, so yeah, absolutely doesn't always, because actually most of those tangible results are individualised in the heads of the learners. Yeah. Um, and so it's harder to demonstrate that value at a, at a kind of senior leadership kind of level sometimes, yeah, because and, 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 it's and, not seen. And when that's, that's captured in things like the National Student Survey, but those questions are predetermined at a yeah. national level, and they don't look at the specifics in terms of things like simulation. No. So then the onus is on the learner, to be creative enough to mention how their learning experience was made better by something like simulation. Yeah. And of course, that's just... That's if they happen down. to think about it when exactly. they're writing out the survey. Exactly. So, I mean, you know, just by way of example, so I have, I have, no, I have no formal time allocation for simulation, although I am clearly, you know, I'm passionate about simulation. Mm -hmm. I love, I love sim, all things sim. Um, but, you know, is this a good use of my time? And if I was line managing me, I might ask the same question. You know, is, is simulation a good use of my time? Is, is producing this podcast, you know, is this, is, is this academic leadership? Is this, is this important or is it actually not so important in, the, in, the, in the, the sort of strategic objectives of delivery of a school of health sciences? Um, you know, it doesn't generate revenue. Mm -hmm. it, it's, it's generated a, sm a small amount of scholarship but not a loads. Um, and I think that's not really a, it's not really a, a, an issue at, at, at a universe, at a school level. It's perhaps more of, you know, um, that there needs to be some recognition of the, of the scholarly and, and pedagogical value of simulation at the level of institution. Yeah. And I think that is, that, that's what it is. Again, with us being advanced beginners in simulation mm. rather than world leading. Well, quite, yeah. So, so I think it's you know what does it say about simulation more widely as a as a kind of a as a scholarly pursuit as a um, a pedagogical tool? Yeah, I and I think that I think we it's it's there when you realise you're you're actually still we're still in quite a nascent emerging area of healthcare and education. I think that segues quite nicely on because I think whilst healthcare simulation has been around for a couple of decades now at least it's still really in its infancy mm. and and still developing yeah and and so 
institutionally understanding that is mm. the next challenge. Yeah, and and that is a really good point because institutions, you know, for example, the University of East Anglia has a staff-student ratio for programs of education, and there's no distinction between. Um, for example, a history of art program mm -hmm. or English mm -hmm. um, or any of the humanities and um, healthcare education programs, which, you know, as we were saying, are just so much more intensive. When it takes you a team of six people to deliver a day's teaching for 45 learners, mm. whereas that might take effectively one tutor's time to deliver two couple of hour lectures over the course of a day, actually what simulation costs healthcare educators in terms of time, in yeah. terms of departments, is so much greater. Mm. And that's not, there's, there's no differentiation, I don't think, that I'm aware of at an at institution level that recognises the resource intensivity of SIM. Yeah, big challenge. Yeah. Big challenge when you try and centralise everything Yeah, and, and regulate it that way. And, you know, I wonder whether anyone listening in has, has, or watching has, has had similar experiences that, you know, have you had to try and justify the increasing staff load that you need to, to deliver simulation in the context of an organisation which says, but a lecture is delivered by one person and teaches yeah. 200 people. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. And then above that, Talking of regulation. Talking of regulation. Regulatory bodies. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I, th I think we need to just perhaps tread on this a little bit cautiously. Yeah. Um, just you and I discussing. But I think it's a nice opportunity perhaps maybe to get someone on the podcast in the future. But simulation yeah. and its definition and understanding by regulatory bodies differs. Yeah. I think the NMC, the GMC, the HCPC all look at simulation slightly differently, mm -hmm. whether they is educational, whether it can be aligned to practice hours. Yeah. And again, it tends to muddy the waters a little bit in terms mm -hmm. of people understanding what simulation is and, and its application. Yeah, you know, where does simulation sit within the context of practice-based learning is is that there is a different perception of that across the varying regulators. There's a, there's a big desire at the moment to use simulation to for want of a better phrase, plug the gaps in practice shortfalls yeah. in, in lots of areas. And actually, that's not just a UK phenomenon. That mm. is an international phenomenon, which oh, yeah. is occurring in the States. It's, it's occurring in Australia. Australian paramedics do a huge amount of simulation before they go out into, into ambulance practice. But this is a super juicy topic, <laughs> and we're not going to do it justice here. So... If you would like to come on the podcast, and I really hope you do, if you'd like to come on and, um, for want of a better word, defend simulation as a tool for practice-based learning, as a replacement for practice learning, for, um, for, for, for placement, we'd love to hear from you. And equally so, if, if you want to <laughs> give the counter-argument, then uh, you're more than welcome to come on and, and, and voice that point of view as well. And we will play devil's advocates. We will indeed. <laughs> Uh, that will be a juicy discussion. I really think it's one that we need to have, though. Uh, I think it'd be an important conversation um, in the context of healthcare education. I think what we can say from that, though, is there are so many mis potential misunderstandings with what simulation is, mm -hmm. how it can be useful, and then understanding the nuances at, at it. Because, again, it's it feels like it's a buzzword at the minute. 
It yep. feels like you can just chuck simulation at a problem and it yep. fixes it. And of course, it's not a panacea Mm-mm. and it's very, very complicated. And actually, when you get down to the the nuts and bolts of it on the shop floor, it means actually delivering sim can be really, really challenging. Yeah. Particularly when you're strapped for resources and you're a busy academic or a busy clinician where simulation isn't the be all and end all. Mm. Yeah, indeed. Okay. Um, so... You're a busy academic, mm-hmm. right? If you're pushed for time, which is like probably most of the time, yep. and um, you're, you're planning or you're, you're thinking about running simulation, what is it that suffers? W- where are the pinch points? Okay, so for me, I might just be inclined to roll something out again, mm-hmm. uh, what I've delivered last year without reviewing it. So that, that, that process of review... Uh, the process of if I've got something new, maybe testing, mm-hmm. because you need time to do that. Simulating your simulation, simulation, simulating your simulations, which is you know advocated, but not always possible. Yeah, you're probably going to need some faculty to do that as well. So getting all those people together to run through the sim for the first time, to test it, to tease out any problems, to go, ah, actually we need this bit of kit and equipment as well with it, or we hadn't considered X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. That's useful, but it often doesn't happen. Mm. Uh, a period of review particularly peer review. So mm. sending scenarios out to a, maybe a subject expert to have mm. a look at, go through for with a fine tooth cone and, and, presumably, and make comments. Presumably also the peer review of your simulation facilitation yes. as well. Yeah. yeah. How often do you have somebody, how often do you contact someone in advance and say, oh, I'm running some simulation. We've got extra pairs of hands. <laughs> yeah. would, you, would you be happy to come and it's, peer review my o- debrief? It's often opportunistic, isn't yeah. it? It's often actually someone who you've just got to help you with facilitation will go, I can do a peer review for you. Yeah. Not someone specifically who's removed from that. And actually that's probably a much better mm. environment for them to do that review. So yeah. So a lot of the kind of the quality assurance, I guess, mm. around delivering good quality simulation could potentially suffer mm. if you're either not organized or you just don't have the time to do it. I think one of the things for me that um, gets uh, relegated is the opportunity for formal evaluation and scholarly output. Mm. I think, you know, it's, it's, it's busy enough when you're, when you're organizing a sim and you're kind of, you're flat out just trying to get it organized, get your team there and make sure you've got the equipment and make sure you've got the rooms ready. And you're not thinking about, I need to get this through ethics approval. So actually I can write this up until after the fact. And then, and then it's probably a bit too late. So I think that's one of the things. And, and the, the, the irony there is that it's exactly that. (laughs) Which is needed to help explain the usefulness of simulation. So, um, (laughs) So yeah, so that that I think is is for me one of the things that, that and and some people do do it. Some people do manage to do it because yeah. there is some brilliant stuff that you see, some brilliant simulation evaluations in the literature. Um, I guess I guess it needs good planning. Mm. It needs frameworks that people can, when they don't have enough time, they can just still grab it and do it. And it's certainly something that we're looking at within our uh, organisation, isn't it? Yeah. Okay, then. So that's the things that get uh, relegated a little bit sometimes. What about the things that you think have to stay regardless? What are sacrosanct in yeah, to the simulation? Great question. Great question. So for me, it, it's all the areas where it, it provides high quality learning for the for the learners. Mm-hmm. So for me, you know, you can't sacrifice the importance of psychological safety, taking the time out to work with your learners to ensure that they know it's an environment for learning rather than an environment where they're just going to be uh, evaluated and and made to feel mm. 
you know, ridiculous if something goes wrong. Equally so, the debrief. Yeah. And it's off, again, ironically, it's often an area when you're pushed for time, they get scrimped and saved because we need to get through that other scenario. Mm-hmm. I'd much rather, And I've said this before, I'd much rather cull the scenario, just qu- concentrate on, on the, uh, the quality of the debrief mm-hmm. instead. Yeah, that is a cardinal sin, isn't it, of simulation, mm. um, curtailing the debrief to squeeze the simulation into the day. That's just given me an idea for another episode. We did the four horsemen of a debrief apocalypse, but it would be amazing to hear from anyone what you think are the cardinal sins of simulation. Mm. What is it that you see happen or that you've done yourself or that you would just deplore? when you see other people do it. Well, we won't get into that now because we'll get hopelessly yeah. off track. Uh, and, and debrief, not feedback. De- oh, yes. Okay, <laughs> fine. Yeah, that's good. So we started on that episode already. But yeah, but, yeah, but I, I, I concur. The, 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 the importance of um, the briefing yeah. to establish psychological safety, yeah. the uh, articulation of the intended learning outcomes yeah. and the opportunity for adequate debrief debrief and reflective conversation yeah yeah. so basically the the quality that means that you have a good learning experience for your learners i think you can't scrimp and save on that yeah it's the kind of patient-centered bit isn't it like it's the if you're a clinician it's the bit actually you know that the admin can wait what matters is student care we're going to do another episode on what you can scrimp and save on yeah uh both in terms of practical and and again educational theory for simulation Mm. um because again the real world world messiness means that sometimes you know you are in a less than perfect situation okay so I think it's probably fair. We, sh- we should probably try and summarise these into kind of strategies for surviving simulation as a side hustle. Yeah. Uh, so we've organised these around the site model, yep. which we talked about um, at the uh, HPSN conference um, back in December. Mm-hmm. But t- talk to us, Tony, what, what are the strategies for survival, do you think? Okay, so if we look at the site model, so looking at the surroundings first, yep. making sure you've got your rooms booked for your simulation event, That's obviously that obviously goes without saying. Mm-hmm. The sooner you can get that booked, the better. If you start leaving it to the last minute, you run the risk of not having anything to do or having a room which is not fit for purpose, yep. both in terms of physical layout and maybe the technology that you need to make your simulation work if you're doing you know, an audio-visual stream to another mm. room. Something it's like probably that. the hardest bit to make do, yeah. isn't it? You, you, yeah. you haven't got a space, you're not running sim. Yeah. So again, depending on your institution, there'll be different ways which you do that. We do our simulation timetabling almost a year in advance. Mm. You have to get that stuff in, otherwise you don't have the facilities to do it. So your hand is almost forced in a, in, a, mm. in a way, which is good, but it's a big, big project. If you are working in a let's say, a, a different environment or you are a, an educator which is doing more ad hoc sim, you have to appreciate that that is going to take time. So you still have, <clears throat> I'd say, a couple of months. You probably have to plan mm. that in advance, it, probably in most places, because you're going to be competing for that space with other interested parties. Of course. Um, if we look at information. Mm. Yeah, the information phase, the sort of, the bits that inform what you're going to be doing in the in the simulation and i'd say for me it's about having the a a strategy for survival is having an absolutely kind of razor sharp focus on the intended learning outcomes yeah you know and probably being flexible about how they can be achieved um because if you're if you're well they'll they'll dictate what you need to do won't they yeah um 
They will detail what you need to do. And and actually, so like you said, uh, uh, under information, if you have a kind of a bank of simulation that you've that you've built up over time of kind of standardized patient scenarios, then recycling those is probably having is a, probably a good strategy for uh, for for managing that and pressure. If, if you can't, then there are workarounds should yeah, we call it <laughs> definitely there we, are there are digital assistants we've used ai yeah, we to have. help us write simulation scenarios okay. so there'll be uh, an episode a link to the episode up there for the episode on on ai mm. um just tread with caution because i have done it myself where i've used ai to generate simulations it it whilst you might think it's time saving i think the conscientious education list would check double check and triple check what has been done uh, created by the AI to make sure it's correct. So yeah. just be mindful of that. But certainly if you've got that writer's block, it can be really, really helpful to yeah, write simulations. Definitely. I think with um, with writing your own simulation from scratch, the writing phase and thinking phase is long and the kind of editing phase is short. With using yeah. with using AI, <laughs> yeah. the writing phase is like five seconds yeah. and then the editing, the editing phase, phase has to be longer. So the review phase. The what review that does phase, is it forces yeah. your hand into making sure that you're reviewing it, perhaps yeah. not a peer review, but you're certainly reviewing those simulations, which yeah. which is one of the issues we talked about earlier. What about team then? So team, you know, the people that you're working with, how how can what strategies could we have under team to to help so survive? When I'm planning and organizing sim, um, it's all I always have that in the back of my mind, I've got X, Y, these people I know I can mm. depend on when it comes to simulation. You ping out that email to the whole school, you can guarantee these two, three, four people are going to reply straight away. Consistently good and responsive yeah. people who will help out. And yeah, having having a having a kind of go-to um, team, for want of a better word, of, of competent, capable educators who you know you can basically chuck them a scenario and go, I appreciate you're not expert in this, Tony, yeah. but can you run this ALS or can you run this scenario? Yeah. With a group of learners, perhaps you haven't been working before. And actually they often say that, that it was really nice to, to work with, yeah. a, with a different group of people. And of course, what we're trying to do is expand that further by making sure that we've got good quality educational provision for people delivering simulations. Yes. So making sure that they, they've got, you know, they're trained to a basic threshold standard, yeah. whether that's an in-house course or, or something like the Resource Council's GIC training, the general yeah. instructor's course is, is a great one to do as well. Yeah, indeed. And, and I think under team as well, having a good working relationship with the simulation technicians or yeah. the technical side or the technical team is really important because more often than not, they'll know, you know, what is the right kit to be using or what kit's available as well. And, and, and often save your bacon on the day if yeah. needed to as well. Yeah, so it's it's well worth... So that, I think, is probably under team. Those are those ones. Um, what about equipment, then? What about survival strategies for equipment? Um, having the minimal viable kit, I think, and equ equipment to yeah. make your simulation in some way believable. Again, yeah. looking at things like that, that, that psychological safety, getting buy-in, de developing a fiction contract. You do need a minimum standard. Mm. Again, we'll come back to this when we do our scrimping and saving episode. So, again, that needs planning particularly if it's uh, consumables, you know, which need to be ordered in. All of these things need to be taken into consideration. And again, working with your technical team, they'll give you a much better understanding of those kind of lead-in times. Yeah, um, for sure. And when you don't have it, maybe being creative with some of your resources as well. Yeah, being able to be a bit flexible yeah. and to be like, hey, and being and being transparent as well with the learners as well. I think, hey guys, we haven't got everything we needed today. <laughs> yeah. uh, this is what we're going to work with because we're going to focus on these learning outcomes because actually assert basic assumption, 
we know you want to do well yeah, and, and this might, is what we've got. It might mean you have to change your learning. I've been in a situation before when we haven't had enough uh, sterile gowns to do scrubbing right. with the number of students. So we've had to repackage them. And of course, part of that process is putting them on in a certain way that you can don your gown mm. using aseptic technique. And that meant that we had to adjust those learning outcomes because they weren't able to achieve that. Right. So it, it just depends, doesn't it? But, it, you know, cancelling the whole event when you have a potential workaround Seems a little bit dramatic. Yeah, agreed. Okay, so we've discussed various aspects today of, of simulation as a side hustle. Um, and I think it's probably fair to conclude that it's messy, the reality yeah. of being a simulation educator. And you, you're fitting it in with loads of other stuff, whether that's clinical or other academic responsibilities. And often it means that we're stretched and we're juggling and we have to find workarounds. Yeah. Nice way to sum things up. Well, thank you. And we hope you enjoyed uh, listening and watching this episode and we look forward to seeing you on the next one. Thank you. Thanks everyone. Bye-bye.